It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist. And joining me to have a conversation about the public funding of arts and culture, and particularly making sure that the funding and the policy that is drawn up to make sure we have socially equitable arts and culture in our cities, in our towns, and our community is Tanisha Nash Lair, who is the president and CEO of the Newark Symphony Hall, which is a historic vintage performing arts center in Newark. I've driven by it a couple of times, haven't had the pleasure of being in the space. But Tanisha, thank you so very much for joining us uh, here on Sunday Civics. I am looking forward to our conversation. I am looking forward to this as well. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. So you are, I mean, you're a public speaker about arts, entertainment, and economic development, particularly how focusing on social equity, focusing on how arts can also be an economic engine. I've seen some of your talks about that before. You've been on the National Endowment for the Arts Board and like funding different uh, projects. And before we get into all of that conversation, because this is your first time on the show, I want you to tell us the story of your first civic action. Okay, well, I hear that student government counts. So I ran for vice president of student council in middle school. It was um, pretty amazing because I, I did have to come up with sort of my platform and my policies and, you know, made posters that went around the school. Um, they had Snoopy on them, um, which was funny. Um, and it, and it, was, it was just an amazing experience because even though I was running as vice president, we weren't running as slates. So we um, had to have our own sort of uh, debates and conversation. And, um, and yeah, that was my, my first civic action. And I won, I won, I won student government. But my first real civic action related to policies that I was seeking to advance came when I was 13. Wow, look at that. I still think that I can do some sort of correlation study of people who were involved in student government or activities in middle school and high school and their lives today. So I want to dive deep into this conversation about public funding of the arts in terms of the responsibility that we have to actually invest in the arts. I want to talk about arts as economic engine for cities, towns, and the federal government. And I also want to talk about the social equity part. But let's start with the public funding part, right? Because, you know, I'm sure you see this all the time. Every now and then somebody gets mad about something that appears on PBS. And then it's just like, why are we funding PBS? And like the, you know, and we figure out like tax dollars are going to these different arts piece and why should we fund it or not? Talk a bit from your perspective, what responsibility we have as it pertains to public funding of arts and culture. Thank you for, for, for starting this way. Let's talk about the why first, right? So why is it important to support the arts? And in the past, we solely talked about um, the economic development aspect in terms of the number of jobs. But I'm really 
glad that there's been a deeper dive in terms of the arts from a, a wellness perspective. So last year, the Knight Foundation uh, released a study that they had commissioned uh, and it was undertaken by the uh, Urban Institute. The study was about what ties people to their communities. And what they found is that the arts uh, was the top thing other than, you know, of course, um, uh, affordable housing, uh, transportation and jobs, but the arts was then right there. And for a specific group, that group was low income people and people of color. And so I think that it's interesting that that is what people uh, that look like me um, and that grew up like me, you know, so I was the demo felt that that is really more about what tied them to their community. And then there's also, of course, all kinds of correlations between the arts and wellness overall. So for me, that's the why. I, I think that that is important to note that in terms of human condition, like there have always been arts and culture in every aspect of humanity, right? right. Like it, it, it is part of who we are, it's part of the thing that separates us from other living things, right? The arts are absolutely part of our humanity. And, and that's why I think that it should be not only funded, but we need to think about the equity and how it's funded as well. Well, let's go to that conversation because we know that that's you know, in terms of the state of affairs, that it is not equitable, right? There is different classes, just like, you know, human condition overall, in terms of what we believe should be invested in as arts and culture, as the general public. Now, here in New York City, we had that ongoing fight, and you you probably know this as well, right? Like, there are the big institutions. There's, like, the, the MoMA and, you know, the Natural History Museum and things like that that are sort of corporatized, you know, arts and culture institutions that have also big endowments from private foundations and families and things of that nature that the public funds, the city government funds, federal government funds, and then you have those other institutions that are community-based, that serve middle class, lower income, you know, families, but people are invested in those things and they are always struggling in terms of funding because they don't have the resources or the amount of people to be able to fundraise for. Is that what you're talking about in terms Absolutely. of that? Absolutely, in terms of the equity, and one of my good friends, Rob Fields, changed that, helped change that narrative with respect to the organization that he ran, uh, Weeksville. Um, and it took it took a minute. It was a lot of advocacy and campaigning, but now Weeksville also uh, will be getting that funding. Weeksville, for those who are listening and don't know, it's a historic uh, African American settlement um, in Brooklyn, and uh, Weeksville before. Rob's tenure did not enjoy that same sort of allocation from public funds as a foundation that all of the other major institutions that you just named did enjoy. Yeah, and we were, I was part of that as part of Brooklyn NAACP and, you know, in the community in terms of advocating for that. I mean, the, the thing that concerns me about the public funding part is that, as my example at the top of this, right, is that every now and then somebody gets mad about something that was, you know, on PBS, it's always the target, right? And it becomes, because we contribute 
money from our tax dollars from the federal government that we should have, you know, control and say over what is actually produced and described as art, as uh, culture. Does that have an impact in terms of what, what gets funded, what doesn't, and what is deemed as art? No, what, what I think what is, impacts it is uh, that sort of action that you led, right? Um, that as part of the Brooklyn NAACP, you made sure that there was advocacy for, for Weeksville. Um, and that's really the difference. Um, I'm just going to sort of use the example of the organization that I run. Newark Symphony Hall is Historic Performing Arts Center. We have been Black-led since the 80s. There are two other major arts institutions in Newark that are part of the state budget annually. Um, And Newark Symphony Hall had not been part of the state budget for nearly two decades. Uh, And so I've been here for two and a half years. Um, And for really, after my first year, I started campaigning for a line item in the state budget. And last year when I was unsuccessful, I realized that I needed to get other people to advocate as well. And so essentially put a, a, a an action plan out. We're going to call all the legislators. Uh, we met with everybody. Um, and I'm when I say everybody, I mean the Legislative Black Caucus, the County Caucus, the uh, leadership of both houses in New Jersey, that is the General Assembly and the, the uh, Senate. So that meant the Senate President and the Assembly Speaker. And to talk about the community benefits. So I did have to focus on hey, Newark Symphony Hall is going to be undertaking a $50 million renovation. And I've already raised money from the private sector. Um, Although we hadn't publicly announced that to anybody, I did have to say that when I spoke to these legislators to let them know that there was private sector skin in the game and that we're going to be creating 500 construction jobs. And I want to make sure that those construction jobs actually go to people in the community. And oh, by the way, not only am I the sole black woman running a performing arts center in the entire state of New Jersey, and they're about 20 something, but we've been black led since the 80s. And we are black and brown serving. Newark is more than half black and more than 35% of the people in the community identify as Hispanic. So this was about equity. When you talk about the other institutions in the city of Newark, they are, until very recently, they were both white-led. They're still considered predominantly white institutions, the museum and the uh, NJPAC, the Performing Arts Center. But I said, this is really about equity. And I wouldn't let up on that particular message. And I think that message hit well this time, uh, considering the uh, social unrest that was happening, but also it was just a reckoning. It was time, 20 years of nothing compared to the amount of investment that had gone into the other institutions. And I want those institutions to remain invested as well. What you said is a great example of civic engagement, right? Because even as a public you know, arts institution, Right, realizing that one, I have to build uh, support in among my community that the that where it sits, the people it serves, right, to educate them about the issue, right. So I'm assuming you had to not even for the community let them know, hey, we don't get money from the federal government. 
you know, that we need your voice and support in order to do that. So you had a coalition build as it pertains to that. Then you also had to meet with those who represent the institution or have the power to um, make change, educate them about the process of the institution and give them the action step for that. All of that is civic engagement at its best that produces this change of North Symphony Hall now having a line item in the budget. It, it was intense. Um, it also involved meeting with the governor's office, which I had met with three times. How this works is the governor puts out a proposal, right? And there's usually some things in that proposal and then the legislature, they negotiate, right? Um, what really kind of... Uh, uh, made me more determined, I'll say, is that there was another uh, organization that I, I won't name, but that I, uh, I really like. Um, they are uh, an orchestra, we'll say that, right? Um, and they're small. They're not even, I think, a decade old. And they have a budget of about $200,000 annually. And the, the governor's budget proposal, he proposed $100,000 for them. And I still had gotten zero in terms of the but the governor's budget proposal, although I had met with the governor's uh, office. And I'm going to be honest, one of the things that they kept saying is, well, we know we have all of these tax credit programs that could assist you. And you know, you can sell tax credits is what they were saying to me. And it was only the next morning that I realized that they thought that I wasn't necessarily familiar with what they were talking about, but yet I've been a public official for economic development. I've privately developed a multi-million dollar venue in New York City. And so the next day I penned a very long email and it started with black and equity and it ended with black and equity. But in the middle, it was receipts, as I like to say, right? And those receipts included the fact that we are, again, a historic institution that um, people see when they come into the city. But unfortunately, because of divestment, decades of divestment, including from the state, you know, we have an appearance of a block deep blighted building despite having been in continuous use and that we do plan because funding these sort of projects are very complicated and so of course we do plan to use all of the programs state programs federal programs um, and so i said you know expertise is not our issue here a line item in the state budget is the issue here. And I look forward to working with you on changing the narrative of support for Black-led, people of color-serving institutions in New Jersey. And that was on that. And that's what we call receipts. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Who is the T-Shop? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, Eljoy Williams. And joining me to have a conversation about the public funding of arts and culture is Tanisha Nash Lair. Well, you know, the, the other piece I want to talk to you is having gone through this experience, and as you mentioned, this was your first time, you know, yes. doing this for the institution. What are some of the best practices you would say that if you were talking to another executive of a cultural institution, an arts institution in another state, even with in your state, right, in terms of being able uh, to mount this campaign in terms of do it, what are some of the best practices you would like to share? I definitely think that what coalition building, as you said, um, again, you know, where I started was my own board. You know, the board um, 
for the most part, had not engaged in this sort of advocacy uh, to the state. Um, and so putting together a list up to the board and, and actually run, walking them through how the budget works. So first of all, first and foremost, this is how the budget works. Um, this is what how we can get into the budget. These are the things that we need to do to get into the budget. Here are the phone numbers of all of the elected officials that represent us, as well as the leadership related to the Budget and Appropriations Committee. Uh, please call them and let them know that we are seeking their support and that you are willing to answer any questions that they have. So making sure that your uh, organization, um, if you're a nonprofit, you have a board, of course, making sure that your uh, board of directors is fully armed with the talking points and know who they need to communicate. So coalition building and understanding how you can bring people together and carry those messages for you and just kind of keep on them in terms of their messaging as well and coaching them and giving them support. Because I, I will tell you, the first time I ever did this, was actually as a public official. Um, and it was really because I didn't know anything, right? I was a first time appointed director of economic development. Um, I had worked in, in New, York, New York City. I'm from New York, but here was in New Jersey. And I had read online that there was an opportunity to go and present to the budget committee. And this is back in 2005. And so I wrote testimony and talked to the budget committee about the things that I thought should happen in that city, not necessarily as a city official, but as a resident, right? So I think most people don't understand or realize that, that you can do that. There are a number of lessons in this conversation in terms of knowing how the budget works, starting where you are in terms of your board and other people who are already supportive of the organization, and then coalition building and mapping to see how you can branch out from there, and then educating along the way, right? You know, educating, you start with yourself, then you go to uh, your board, then you go to the community, then you go to the elected officials and the governor and the staff who have the power of it, and then not backing down just because you hear a no or because someone is trying to push you another way, like in subsidies or yeah, <laughs> tax credit or something. Listen, I'm going to tell you the group that I was really pleased to be able to talk to because they said, well, what can we do to support you were college students. You know, I was invited to speak to a, a few classes at Rutgers University. And I said, this is what you can do. Pick up the phone and call over to the legislators and to the governor's office. And I know several of them did. And so what I found out, because I've never actually worked on that side in terms of legislators, I've worked on the executive branch, I've worked for a mayor, is that they actually say um, internally for every one call, they know that there's maybe six or seven or some other algorithm that they come up with. So that was really helpful that even just those few students were calling, our uh, board was calling, and then the general public that, uh, that we have put together sort of movers and shakers were also calling as well. Very, very good. This is, I love this example. And it's a great example of some of the things that we've talked about here on the show about, you know, the budget process, about coalition building, about communicating with those who represent you, who are elected <laughs> to represent you and even represent an institution and the people and then being able to go out and, and get what uh, is equitably belongs to the organization, right? So you're not asking for something that the organization is not deserving of. <laughs> you're not, you're asking for fair share 
right? An equitable share in terms of supporting an institution that supports people in the community. Um, but I'm going to tell you, it wasn't easy. You know, I had one meeting with, um, I would say, an older elected official who is not a person of color. And the whole time that we were talking, he said things like, oh, I think so-and-so should just take you over, um, you know, another institution. Or, you know, that institution, they have people that know how to do this thing that you're seeking to do. And so the whole meeting, I had to smile and say, thank you for asking that. Thank you for raising that because it allows me to share with you my credentials in this area. It allows me to share with you the experts that we have supporting us. It allows me to tell you how we now have a national funder that is assisting us and helping us uh, hire some development consultants so that I'm not the sole person fundraising. So my approach is to always smile, to always be affirming and to say thank you no matter what kind of craziness. <laughs> They were growing, throwing at me because what I knew is that by being adversarial in this particular scenario, I was not going to get what I needed to get. That I had to be affirming and actually make them feel good about giving me what we're actually due, but I had to make them feel good about it. Now, Tanisha, you can do a whole nother lesson, a whole nother show about how going in meetings and sometimes being adversarial and roll your neck, black girl, and rolling your eyes. Sometimes in certain spaces, that's what you have to do and that works and other and other places is, okay, I'm going in as a representative of this institution, also as a representative of this community. And I am tasked with going in to come back out with the resources, with the stuff. And so sometimes I have to put uh, Tanisha on the, <laughs> like on, on the shelf so that I can go in as the uh, uh, professional, if you will, to bring back the resources. That's a whole nother class, That's girl. a whole nother thing. And it's hard, right? Because my ego does get involved somehow. Like I said, when the governor's office was saying, well, you know, there are these tax credits. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> You know, so sometimes you kind of have to like, okay, acknowledge and then say, got it. Here, here's what I got. But here we're going to keep on message. So, yeah, sometimes it is that it is a neck rolling moment. But in the mixed audience, I knew that that was not what's going to happen. We obviously have a lot of these generational conversations. You know, I'm Generation X. And sometimes when I'm managing or people are working from me who are younger and stuff and they say certain stuff or do certain stuff. And I'm like, oh, did you? What the? Right, because we would have never, we like I would have never. Uh, but but like, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you some of these meetings I took, and I'm really thankful. Um, I did have some some support in the meetings of some, uh, what I will describe as baby boomers. To the baby boomers, you and I are the radicals, though, because I right. remember I got a text, I got a side text uh, when we were going into the meeting with the with the legislator that I knew was concerned about jobs, and and, and it was from a baby boomer who said, now you know, hold up on the black stuff. <laughs> and I said, I know who my audience is. I know who I'm talking to right now, right? right? But, I, but I, all... listen, I, I appreciated that he was concerned, you know, <laughs> but we're the radicals to the, to the baby boomers. Just understand. Absolutely. But the and, millennials, and, and, they're on a whole other thing. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and, and that's what I try. I try to keep in perspective, right? To every generation or whatever, it, because now even to millennials and youngers or whatever, they call me like establishment. And I'm like, the hell? Do you know like the, the backlash that happened to 
me from like this generation, like, right? So like in every generation you become the establishment because you are established, right? Because you are the, and it's just keeping in context and keeping in perspective. It's not personal. It's just their, con- like, they don't know nothing. They don't know the history just as the baby boomers would say about us. Oh, they, they don't know nothing. And so now they think I'm the, Oh yeah, I, I got this particular baby boomer. He might be listening to this. Uh, he's gonna say he's gonna recognize himself. I know he thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> I, but listen, let's talk about the results here, right? We went from nothing in the budget to five million dollars. When I told a professional lobbyist about that, she was blown away. Wow. Um, and that was really all. And again, I am I am far from that. I'm not a professional lobbyist. Um, in fact, what's funny is that we were looking at hiring a lobbyist to do this for us. and We literally couldn't afford it. <laughs> so, so, so that's the reason why I did it myself. But that was the result. Um, and yes, we need every we need every generation. I'm grateful for yeah. the boomers. I'm grateful yes. for millennials. We need every yes. generation here. We need we need all, and it, it's just going to take all of us. And when we talk about the coalition building, we got to build coalition amongst generation and amongst yes. yourself. And then sometimes just go into your room by yourself and be like, I know they asses is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and that could be, yes. that phrase can even be talked about the boomers or the millennials. Because right. us in the middle, I feel like we always just like, y'all are too extra and y'all are too extra. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. But we show up, right? We absolutely show up. And this is what this was about. This was about showing up and proving that we could do this. And I think it's um it's textbook. And I'm really proud that we were able to bring this home for our well Tanisha, thank you so much and congratulations to the center. Congratulations to you and your entire team for being able to pull this together. I am looking forward to walking up in the space of Newark Symphony Hall <laughs> um, at some point. I'm gonna have to look up y'all's schedule and see where I can come and bring the kids. You um, are totally invited. Awesome. I can't wait. Thank you so very much for taking the time. And we'll be back with more Sunday Civics. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We are talking about public funding for the arts. We're talking about our responsibility to make sure those who work in the arts, the institutions that rely on the arts, and quite frankly, all of us rely on the arts. You not uh, may not think about it. You may think about the arts only as you go into like your kid's recital or going to Broadway or going, you know, to the movies or things like that. But as we talked about, there are thousands, millions of people who work in the arts industry and their dollars once they have jobs. And a number of people got laid off during COVID. We're still talking about the ripple effects that COVID has had throughout our economy. And you just think about it. Those who uh, had jobs who were part of building the sets uh, for those who either participated in shows on Broadway or in your local community or even on movie sets, right? Those are are 
jobs. Those are how people make a living. And it's art. And so we have a responsibility, not at, not only as those of us who are patrons, but also the public. Arts is what separates us in terms of other living things, in terms of we need it to survive. Yes, we do need arts, art of our entertainment and social work. And we just talked to a head of an institution who talked about how she had to pull together her staff and her community in order to increase the funding and support for institutions institutions like theirs who are not just wealthy patrons that want to go and see a show, but these institutions also invest in our children. They also create jobs and help boost up our economy. So I wanted to continue this conversation. And let me tell you, it was a hard time trying to get someone on the show to talk about public funding from a federal government standpoint, not just on the local and state budgets. People didn't want to talk, but I am happy. Shout out to June who is an Ovation watcher, who was able to reach out to folks at Ovation TV. And it turns out that they have a campaign of their own and did an open letter to Congress about the economic recovery of the arts. And they did the letter to President Biden and to Congress about relief funding, about the jobs, about the institutions, all of the things that are at stake when it comes to the arts and our economy. And so joining us uh, for the first time, it's, I think this is the first time I had other people from other networks on my show, but welcome <laughs> to Liz and Rachel who are joining us. Let me just introduce them. Liz is the executive vice president of network strategy um, at Ovation TV. And Rachel is the president and CEO of the Music Center in Los Angeles. Welcome to both of you. And thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So Liz, I want to start with you. You know, usually we have current and former politicians and activists and advocates, you are advocating in the space that you are uh, in today. I want to hear the story of your first civic action. Well, I think it goes back to when I was uh, 14 years old. Um, and I don't know that I remember at the time the impact that it had on me. But when I reflect upon it, um, it was a big moment in my life. And it was me, my brother and my sister and my mother and my father, all becoming U.S. citizens um, at the same time, all together. Um, and it was an incredible moment in my life. And I don't think when I was, you know, a teenager that I really understood the impact. But, you know, that gave me the right. Obviously, I wasn't old enough at the time to vote or to pay taxes or to be on jury duty. Um, but I became an official citizen of the country. Um, and, and that was a, a really proud moment for me. I love that, Liz. And, you know, in um, the um, upcoming year, I'm doing a whole series on immigration and helping people to understand the process. Because quite frankly, one, people think, you know, they use this phrase all the time, like people should go in line and it's just like, OK, show people where the line is and what the process is. And if you ask the re a regular person on the street, do they know what the process is to become an American citizen? People are like, you fill out paperwork and then they stamp it at some point. Uh, you know, 
<laughs> so like helping people to understand the process is something that we're doing in the new year. So I look forward to hearing your response after we aired that series to see if the experience was similar. Mm-hmm. So Rachel, I'm going to come to you over in Los Angeles to hear the story of your first civic action. So having grown up in California where um, uh, on the ballots are a bazillion propositions each um, election cycle, as a little girl, I have a strong memory of sitting with my parents and their friends and reviewing every proposition for the, you know, what to vote on, the pros and the cons, and then going with my mom into the voting booth and, you know, they had the little curtain and, you know, the big levers. And, and I thought that it was this incredibly mysterious and magical thing that we were doing. And uh, frankly, I still do. Um, but I have strong memories of joining my mom in the polling booth. I love that. We have so many stories, so many first civic action stories of young people being young with their parents, either campaigning, going to vote. And as you mentioned, it's something that's ingrained in you. And then you just think it's part of normal behavior when you are an adult. It's like, oh yeah, I went and did this thing. Now, you know, it's my turn to be able to do it. And you're right. Having, I I went to high school in California and I can remember all of the different campaigns, opposing, supporting, all of the things was, you know, it wasn't until I got to college that I realized not every state and every area had a bazillion (laughs) things on the ballot for you to go through. So I appreciate that. So I want to get to the conversation we were talking about, about the arts. And, you know, I will set aside if we have time to get your thoughts on the speculation of why it was so difficult to get federal folks to talk about public funding for the arts. But I want to talk about this open letter that the Ovation put out regarding the impact that COVID has had on the arts sector, not just on the institutions, but as is mentioned in the letter, the millions of jobs that were on the line and how we need to invest in the arts sector, not only from a COVID recovery, because the art sector was needed investment even before COVID. So Liz, can you talk a bit about the impetus of this? Well, I, I think that, you know, it sort of goes back to um, many years ago, I think in 2014, we launched this initiative called Stand for the Arts. Um, and we coalesced right now about 130 nonprofit organizations around the country. And what we do is we shine a light on the power that they bring um, to their communities, to their states, to the country. Um, We give them donations, we create public service announcements, um, and we help the public understand the importance of of art um, in their their communities. Um, And we've been doing it for years. Um, And every year we've been advocating for more funding to the NEA and the NEH. Um, And it's been, you know, a political, I don't know what to call it, um, but it's been a fight to get more funding. and even though it's been growing a little bit, especially under the Biden administration, it took a big bump. Um, it's still pennies on the dime in terms of what the arts contribute to the economy. And, and so when COVID hit, um, and obviously, you know, many countries reeled from the economic impact, lots of industries were being talked about in terms of financial aid, the restaurant sector, the airline sector, um, you know, small business sector, um, and the government stepped up to provide aid. But there was no one 
in the government, you know, sort of listening to the needs of the art organizations and the impact that they faced. Um, and, you know, the art sector has really done um, a poor job in, in connecting with, with people about the economic value of the arts. I mean, we all know that the arts make you feel good and make you happy and joyful. Um, but I don't think many people really understand that it's over $900 billion in economic contribution to the country, 5 million people employed in the sector. So when nonprofits close their doors and they can't raise money, uh, people are not donating um, like they used to, um, the role of the government should be to step in for so many reasons, and I can list them all. Um, and we thought that if we put this letter together, that we would get some attention by the federal government, some attention in the press to be able to talk about the subject. Um, and thank you for bringing this subject up and allowing us to speak to your um, passionate fans about the impact of, of the arts and the importance of the sector. Um, and we're just trying to raise awareness that this is an industry in need of aid. And it's not, you cannot build back better without taking the art sector into consideration. You know, Rachel, I, I said this in the, in the beginning, that one, you know, one of the things that separates us from other living things is producing art and is our need, right, for us to participate in art and not only in creating it, but watching it, experiencing it, right? It's one of the things that make us human. And I do think that part of the reason that people may have this sort of not focusing arts as a necessity as, a, as it pertains to public funding is that it's something that wealthy people do. <laughs> and something that wealthy white people do, right? You know, wealthy white people consume art, they buy it, they trade it, they invest in it, they donate it, and not think about the economic impacts that it has in our communities and on our well-being, and that it's not just, you know, wealthy white people who need it or need to finance it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, echoing on Liz's comments, you know, I, I believe I've spent my whole life in the arts that the arts make people's lives better. You know, they, um, and, and the arts happen everywhere. It's not just in fancy theaters um, for wealthy people. It is in parks, in schools, in community centers, in honky tonks. It's uh, everywhere. And it, it provides sort of a sense of, greater connection with your community, a greater sense of empathy. It really helps your mental health. I mean, how would we have survived COVID without being able to connect with music and you know, what we watch Netflix on TV and all these other things? Um, they really make for the quality of life uh, incredibly, um, it's really important. It's also really helping with the sort of in civic life because being a community, as we try to emerge from COVID, we're trying to heal these incredible wounds in our country and going using the arts through that will be incredibly helpful and important. So there's hugely that piece. And then also, you know, the other part is the economic piece. 
And as Liz mentioned, it's a big piece of the economy. And I think people don't realize, and you mentioned this in your intro, that the jobs, they're all the wonderful jobs on the stage and the fancy artists and what have you. That is a small part of the arts world. What we are is we have a lot of sort of main street jobs that buoy up a community. It's the parking lot attendants, the housekeepers, the security staff, the restaurant staff. You know, in addition, it's the the arts and culture industry feed, the tourism industry, hospitality, travel. It's a big, big um, industry and needs to be recognized as such by the federal government. Yeah, I mean, just connected to that, I saw an an infographic once that talked about the arts and everybody is focused on the actor in the movie, but then it goes down and it shows like all of the other industries and jobs that support that one actor being in that scene, right? The set designer, the small business that provides the catering for all of the, the, the production, the production company company, the uh, marketing company, you know, sort of all of those things uh, and those different industries, as you mentioned, the movie theaters and all of those things are connected to this industry. One of the things in reading the letter that was mentioned is about a cabinet position as it pertains to the arts. And I, you know, quite honestly, had never thought of that before. What would adding a cabinet position do to bolster arts as the economy? and also in uh, public funding? Well, I would say that, you know, to have, you know, quote unquote, an advocate in chief for the arts, but the arts and culture need to have a voice at the table. When huge decisions around tax policy, um, intellectual property policy, um, immigration, you know, how do we get artists in and out of this country? The arts have not had a voice at those tables at the really top levels. And until we do, we're not going to be taken seriously. And, you know, this incredible industry that is absolutely an integral part of our broader civic existence deserves a voice, especially because it's such a strong economic uh, driver in the country. And to not have that voice at that level, to have a say in how these policies are created and to advocate for the sector, I think is a shame. Mm. Mm. I think the, the person, whoever, you know, would be lucky enough to sort of have this position can talk about, you know, the benefits um, that the, the country would enjoy from talking about um, the impact of art in your life. Um, I mean, veterans um, are really impacted by art therapy. Um, many kids with disabilities um, really have helped and aided um, with either picking up a paintbrush or um, you know taking violin lessons. I mean, there's been studies that show that if you're involved in the arts, you actually um, have better grades in, in math and in school. Um, there's also, you know, the, the sort of topic that nobody discusses, which is everyone in the country is taking some kind of anxiety medication to deal with stress or stress with COVID, um, prescription medication in this country is through the roof. And, you know, if we had an art czar that would talk about the fact, you know, pick up a paintbrush, 
or pick up a violin rather than popping that pill, then maybe, you know, your anxiety or your stress can be dealt with in a better way. I mean, there's health benefits to talking about it in addition to economic benefits, in addition to just the pure joy of experiencing, you know, art in, in all of its forms. Um, and, and maybe the public would begin to understand that there are ways to sort of cope um, and to be forthright about how the art heals um, for, for people with all kinds of um, health issues or disability issues. Um, it's sort of a taboo to discuss. And I think this would be a great conversation to sort of have in the open about the healing benefits of art. And how now, they, I'm sorry. How no, they, go ahead. Uh, how they strengthen community. You know, I think back the music center, we're a very large performing arts center with a big plaza. And over the summer during COVID, we brought back something we call Dance DTLA, where 5,000 people can come onto the plaza for free. And there's a live band and dance lessons. And they were all dancing together for the first time, emerging from people were crying because they, this, you know, relationship with the artists on stage with each other and it's little people, big people from all walks of life coming together. And when you do something jointly together that's joyful, it strengthens your community and there's just no replacing that. It's just, I mean, I've got to say, it was just incredibly heartwarming to see after these horrible 20 months, people coming together in joy. Yeah. You know, one of the other things is just thinking about public funding and particularly federal funding for arts, be it from performative arts, you know, as you talk about large institutions, smaller institutions. I know we talk about here in New York, everything is always focused on Broadway and movies and things of that nature. But even talking about sort of the smaller nonprofit institutions, yes, it's a museum. Yes, it's a historical society, but it also provides an educational leeway for children, for college students, and the amount that they contribute to our education. And then I think about, Liz, that like on the federal level, there's only, what is it, the NEA that provides federal funding. And even that, like every now and then it gets caught up in political nonsense and people are talking about the politicalization of like Sesame Street. And I'm like, really, Sesame Street? Like, <laughs> you know, like of how the benefits. And I think part of the political problem is people are thinking about why are we investing in the arts when people are hungry or people are on the poverty line and our kids need need clothes and things of that nature. And we're going to put billions of dollars into the arts. You know, it becomes a marketing problem for some people. It's absolutely a, a marketing problem because I don't think we've done a great job in talking about all the benefits that the arts bring. But one of the things that I think, you know, people don't really understand is when the federal government or the NEA doles out money, it doles it out to every single congressional district, every single one. That includes, you know, New York to um, Mississippi to all the um, districts in all of those states. Um, that and and a really big portion of those funds go to high poverty neighborhoods. Um, I mean, there's and there's grants and there's matches um, and public donations just are not equally dispersed. Public donations don't go to every single district, and so a lot of districts would be left out if the federal government did, did not intervene. Um, and it's just really a, a messaging um, 
issue um, because the Pentagon actually spends more money in military bans than it does in doling out federal funding for the arts. Nobody knows that. And if you, if you talk about that, um, they may be embarrassed to actually admit that more money goes to the military bans than it does to federal funding for the arts. Um, so we need to have this conversation. We need to have it in the open so that we can discuss the benefits. And there's tremendous value to every single con congressional district getting some money um, from the federal government. And, and as you said, these nonprofits, think about a small nonprofit in a small district that for some reason you know, is shuttered. Um, next door is a restaurant. Next door to that could be an ice cream store. Next door to that is a parking facility. All those businesses are impacted because that little museum or that's our arts and crafts center, you know, has closed its doors due to COVID. All those, the domino effect of all those businesses, um, it's a force multiplier when, when you think about um, the impact to these districts. Yeah. You know, I just use that as an example. There is a museum, a little corridor that I often go visit where there's a museum, there's a botanical garden, there's the library. And it's like, oh, if I'm going to go to the botanical garden thing, I'm going to make a reservation at this restaurant because they got really good pancakes, <laughs> you know. And then afterwards, when we go to the library, we can go to the little stand at the end and get like ice cream, right? You know, you have in your mind of like, what are the things that I'm going to do surrounding this? Now, because it's outside of my immediate neighborhood, I don't go to those businesses as destinations. I only go to those businesses when I am going to the museum, to the botanical garden, or to, you know, to that area. I'm not like, oh, I'm going to drive over, take the train over or whatever. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of corridors, arts corridors that are like that. They are people only go to the surrounding businesses or areas or things of that nature because they're going to be there for something else. I'm going to take my class to, you know, see this performance and then we're going to go across the street to the diner afterwards, right? So like all of those things are impacted. And then as we talked about, you know, there are still people, thousands of millions of people who are unemployed still because of COVID that work in the um, arts industry. So what can people listening do? Just as we wrap up here, what can, you know, the person who is listening to the show, who cares very deeply about arts, who may even be one of those folks whose businesses are impacted or their job has been impacted by the economic downturn and they work related to the arts industry? Well, it's easy to go to, um, you know, OvationTV.com or StandForTheArts.com. And, you know, there's a little icon there to take action. Um, you key in your address and your zip code and all uh, it pops up all of the elected officials, um, state and federal, and you can contact them, you can call them. Um, there's, you can write a letter, you can tweet. Um, it's about making your voice heard. It's about connecting with your um, politicians to let them know the arts matter, to let them know that they should read this letter, to let them know that they should um, really support the arts. Um, and you know, the more people that take action, uh, the more attention uh, Congress will give to uh, this much needed uh, sector and provide financial relief, which the sector is still waiting for, by the way. 
Yeah, and I'd also say um, that support your local arts organizations. Go to the theater, go to a museum, you know, enroll your kid in arts education programs, support them that way so that we get our people who are associated with these organizations working um, and supported. I think that's incredibly important as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Liz and Rachel, thank you so very much for joining us. We will certainly be sharing out this information. And, you know, I look forward to hearing from those of you who work in arts related industries, how COVID and how even before then your business and your livelihood has been impacted. And also, if you're a nonprofit and, you know, arts group and thing, whatever, you got some shows, send it to me. I want to come and watch and, and participate <laughs> in your shows. I mean, I got foster kids. We will, you will, we always need something for them to do. So we <laughs> like share that information with me and we will make sure to share it out. And for those of you who are in areas and neighborhoods, Rachel, I'm going to be in LA in February. I will make a point to come, oh, <laughs> to come and share. So thank you, Liz and Rachel, for joining us for this important conversation. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics. I'm your host, Eljoy Williams, and your neighborhood political strategist. I'm so thankful you made it this Sunday, and we'll see you next Sunday. Uh,